And before you sit down, give somebody a hug, tell them you love them or high five, whatever's not weird. Let them know the love of Christ. And then you can grab a seat. I'm just curious, I want to see a show of hands as we get started. Um, how many of you on some level have made some sort of New Year's resolution to begin the year? Raise your hand high, don't be embarrassed, own it if you did it. How many of you have already broken the New Year's resolution? How many of you lied because you hate being asked questions like this and, and no matter what I say, you won't raise your hand? How many? I'm not, I'm not much of a New Year's resolution person, mostly because I hate feeling bad about myself 10 days later, you know, and so I used to make New Year's resolutions and I'd come up with all of these big ideas and then January 5th would roll by and it was like, ah, oh, that was fun for a few days and then I'd feel terrible about it and try it again the next year. But one of the things that I've begun to notice about myself is even though I don't tend to make formal resolutions, there is this thing that happens in my heart every year when I come to the end of December and then step into the beginning of January. There's something about the end of December that just kind of awakens my heart and I start reflecting back on the year that was. And maybe you do this and you don't even think about it. You just kind of come to the end of a year and you start kind of thinking back, okay, how did I use this year? Did I do what I wanted to do? Did I love my family well? Did I love the Lord well? Did I love my friends well? Did I work at whatever it is? You know, sometimes there's this tendency as I come to the end of December just to reflect back. And then I get into Christmas and I eat way too much food and watch too much football and sleep too much. It's all wonderful. And my, my heart begins to rest. And one of the things that I've noticed as my heart begins to rest is my imagination begins to expand again. I start to dream. Maybe you've noticed that you go on vacation and you start being filled with these ideas. And so just as December causes me so often to think about the year that was, January causes me to dream about the year that could be. And one of the things that I've noticed is whenever I give myself enough space to really think about what was and what could be, it's there in between the tension of those two things that I discover what is. And I, I see this happening every year where I kind of get into the Christmas, New Year season and for better or worse, I begin to discover some things about myself that I love and some th things about myself that I begin to hate. And, you know, one of the things that I was confessing to my wife, Sydney, just a few days ago is I'm amazed at my propensity as a man of God to over and over and over lose sight of my greatest purposes and my greatest passions very consistently. Have you ever noticed how easy this is in your life? No matter how hard you try, like life just comes. And so often it's very rarely something big and negative. It's just kind of the monotony, the everyday grind will just kind of begin to take it out of you. And over time, isn't it true that even in the areas of your life that are most important, it is very easy to lose sight of your passions and your purposes, right? Uh, I remember this happening when I went to college. You know, you go into college and you have all of these like ambitions or actually I didn't really have a lot of ambitions when I went to college. I picked my major my junior year. So this isn't a very good illustration for me. But, you know, some of you went to college and you had all of these ambitions. You know, I'm going to be a med, a pre-med student. And then I'm going to go to medical school, and then I'll get a residency, and then I'll go somewhere overseas, and I'll serve. I'll make a difference. And you had, like, these passions, this purpose. This is what I'm going to do with my time in school. And isn't it amazing how five months in or six months in, you know, that girl dumps you or something falls apart at home or you get in the midst of a class that was a lot harder than you thought it was going to be. And kind of in the everyday grind of life, you go from thriving in the context of college to just surviving. Man, I just want to get through. 
I just want to finish. Remember the last paper that I wrote in college, I actually wrote an apology note to the professor. I'm like, listen, I know this paper is terrible, but you're not going to fail me. So this is as good as it's going to get. I remember just kind of going from this place of thriving to, to just surviving. I'm just going to get by. We, we, we do this in our relationships. Uh, you know, Sydney and I talk about this so many times in the context of marriage. I've never loved my wife more than I love her right now. I know it sounds cliche and I'm up front. I'm probably supposed to say that, but it's truly true. I've been married nine years. Never loved her more than I love her right now, but marriage is not easy. And uh, anybody that tells you marriage is easy has never been married <laughs> or they haven't been married very long or they're lying, you know, whatever the story. But it's like if, if you've been around anybody that's been married, sometimes it's just like really tough and you, you got to work at it. And she has to work at it much harder than I do because I'm much more difficult to live with. But, you know, one of the things that astounds me, you know, every year I'll do a ton of weddings. You know, you can just kind of look around this room. It's like a marriage factory. Young people come here, worship God, get married. Great place to be. And I, I, I'll, I'll do weddings. And one of the questions that I'll ask Every person that, you know, when I'm getting ready to perform their wedding, the question that I always ask is, you know, what, what's your dream in marriage? Like, what's your purpose for, for doing this? And in all the years, I've done tons of weddings. I've never had a single couple say, here's our dream for marriage. We want to start with this, like, white, hot romance. And then two years in, we want to be casual friends. And four years later, we want to be dysfunctional roommates. And then when the kids go off to college, we want to separate to different corners of the house never to talk again. Nobody dreams about that. Nobody starts there. But how many people in there? And so often it's not the big things, right? It's, it's the little things. And you go from thriving in that friendship or in that marriage or in that relationship, whatever it is, to just surviving. This happens in your job. You know, how many times you pray like, Lord, give me this job. You pray and you pray. And then I love, you know, you come in here. It's like God finally entered the prayer. He gave me this job. You know, he sovereignly appointed me into this business or into this school or into whatever it is. And I'm going to change the world in this job. And then like three weeks in, you meet Larry, who's your coworker. And you're like, oh, God, like get me out of this job. <laughs> and then a month later, it's like, hey, how's the job going? I, I think the Lord's calling me somewhere else, you know. <laughs> And you go from thriving to, to just surviving. And we could go in like every realm of your life and this happens, right? You just kind of get in the groove and things begin to unfold. And one of the things that I've noticed kind of in this season when I think back on what is and what could be is any time my life has gone from thriving to just surviving, if I don't do something different, eventually it be, I begin dying. Whatever, whatever the relationship, the dream, the passion, the vision. And this isn't just with us individually. This is with us communally. It blows me away. We live in the belt buckle of the Bible belt. Every week I'll be driving somewhere through Nashville and I'll pass another church that's put a for sale sign in the front yard. I go, man, what happened there? I go, at one point, you know, there's a group of people like us, like, like every, everything, like every, every church that's ever started, you know, just, they come together and they go, man, God's got a plan for us. God is bigger. God loves this culture. God wants to use us. And there's this like passion, like beating in the hearts of the people. And then things change. They get older and they start having kids and life gets busy and things get hard and they go from thriving to just surviving. And if they don't really come back and look at the picture of God and the glory of God and the purposes of God and the passions of God, you put a for sale sign in the yard. Because that what was thriving and only surviving eventually begins dying unless the Lord does something amazing. I go, man, God, like, like what do you have for our church family? I go, here we are, we're in our sixth year as a church, and God's done amazing things. But I go, what he wants to do among us moving forward surely is better than what he's done in the rearview mirror. 
And my question for us at the beginning of New Year is what would happen if we just kind of stopped and paused and evaluated and said, okay, God, do the passions and the purposes of our life line up with the passions and the purposes of your life? Does this church, like, do we, we look and act and worship and respond the way that you've made us to worship and act and respond? And as I just want to lay before the Lord and to ask some uh, hopefully good questions to think about and say, God, have your way amongst the people of ethos. Because I'm, I'm tired of Bible Belt Christianity where a full building and a good speaker and a great band is enough to draw a crowd. Like, oh, we need the presence of God. We need the person of God among us doing what only God can do, right? That's why I'm here. That's why you're here. I know that's why most of you are here. And so tonight, Mark chapter 1 is where we're going to start. And I love this um, picture in Mark 1. I can't imagine a better place for us to begin. Because Mark just kind of lays, man, here is Jesus. He puts the gospel out right at the very beginning. And then he gives us this picture of a guy named John the Baptist, a guy whose life was fully yielded to the ways of God, and it's almost as if Mark is saying, listen, I'm not writing this book just to inform you of what God has done. I'm writing this book to invite you into the story that God is still writing, and the question is, is your imagination big enough to go the places where God is getting ready to take you? And he lays it before us. Mark chapter 1, let's start back in verse 1 together. You guys with me tonight? This, this makes sense. You've seen the picture. Okay, here we go. Verse 1, it says, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it has been written in Isaiah the prophet. So I love where Mark begins. He says, listen, here's the big idea. If you don't get anything else out of the gospel of Mark, everything good that you're getting ready to see solely is connected, solely is pointing to Jesus Christ. He introduces us in the first sentence to the star of the story. He says, Jesus Christ, all, all the goodness, all the love, all the power, all the miraculous transformation, everything that you're going to experience over the next several months as we go through the gospel to Mark is for one person. It comes from one person. It is through one person. And that is Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the Messiah. He just lays it out there. Very says, this book, there is one star in the story. And then he does something really Peculiar, You know, I, I kind of wrestled with this this week because, because, man, this story is all about Jesus. But let me introduce you to his friend John. Because the first sentence, Jesus. And he goes, but let me tell you about John the Baptist because it's almost as if Mark knew that so often the love and the grace and the transformative power of God, although it was from God, so often it enters into the world through ordinary human beings just like you and I. And it's as if he wants us to see that the grace and love of Jesus came into the world, not in some crazy cosmic way, but through the life of an ordinary person just like you and I, who began to prepare the way for Jesus to make a real difference in the lives of those that would encounter him. And so it starts, he goes, this is a story about Jesus, but I want to introduce you to John as you look at Jesus in hopes that maybe your life could take some lessons. You could see maybe some of the things that God is doing. And I don't know if you take notes tonight, but I want you to notice just kind of three trajectories as we look at John, as we wrestle with who we are as a church family. There's kind of three things that I want us to look at. Who he was as a man, number one, who he was. Number two, what he did with his life. How did he steward his purposes and his passions? What did he do with his life? Number three, how did he go about doing it? Who was he? What did he do? 
How did he go about doing it? If you grew up in a church where they made all the points start with the same letter, the man, the mission, the message, how's that for you? You know, you kind of get your mind around it as we kind of go through uh, Mark and as we look at the gospel or as we look at John the Baptist. We're going to start in verse 2. I want you to see this, this kind of first idea. Who was this John the Baptist that kept pointing people to Jesus? It says, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, it says, I will send my messenger ahead of you, one who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist came into the desert preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Just imagine this. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And John wore clothing that was made of camel's hair with a leather belt wrapped around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. So I want you to see this, kind of this first picture. Who was John? Who was John? Like, what, what was he doing? And Mark gives us this, like, really kind of beautiful, crystal clear picture. If you, if you take notes, I'll kind of give you the big idea, and then we'll work down from there. Who was John? He was this man that stood with Jesus for the sake of a generation that did not know Jesus. Everything that we're going to discover about John the Baptist, even as we read through the Gospel of Mark, as we look at the life of Jesus, we see John. You're going to see this over and over and over. He was a man that unapologetically stood with Jesus. For the love of Jesus, the ways of Jesus, the thoughts of Jesus, he stood with Jesus, even to his own death. He's going to stand with Jesus, but he's going to stand with Jesus for the sake of a generation that does not yet know Jesus. And this is what's so beautiful. Could you see this? As you get into to Mark chapter 1, there is this like revival breaking out amongst the people. And wherever there's a revival, you almost always see two things. You see, one, the unexplainable work of God in the context of a culture. And right alongside the unexplainable work of God in the context of that culture will be one woman or one man who is willing to stand with Jesus for the sake of that culture. And Mark says, if you want to understand what God began to do in the world at this time, he says, it was God's work. This is his story. This is the beginning of Jesus' gospel. But the reason you're seeing it is because there's a man named John, and John stood with Jesus for the sake of the generation. And you know this man. I love this. You can go back to, to verse 4, and you can imagine almost the things that the people would have thought because they knew who John was. They, they, they grew up around John. If you read in the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll begin to discover that John was a pastor's kid from Jerusalem. They grew up watching this kid play t-ball. They went to a sixth grade band recital. And they, they saw all of the things that he did. They, they knew him. And this is what you begin to see is that so often when God wants to reach a generation, he raises up someone from within that generation. And this one that he's raised up is a man named John. And John is a man that is standing with Jesus for the sake of a generation that does not yet know Jesus. And he's from the culture, and he's going to work for the good of the culture, but he is living a life that is different than the culture. I love the way that he described him. It's so weird when we read it. He says, here's this bro. He shows up. He's wearing you know, camel's hair and a leather belt, and he's eating honey and wild locusts. And we read that, and it's like, well, that's weird. This, this guy's crazy. But in, in their culture, in their context, that was the normal clothing that a prophet would wear. And so you and I know what it's like. You show up at a coffee shop. If you're in a coffee shop, just play along with me for a moment. And you see somebody wearing a black dress shirt with a white collar. What do they do for a living? What's their job? Say it out loud. Yeah, yeah there you go. A priest, a pastor, right? You, you know that. If you're in 12 South and you see somebody wearing skinny jeans and they button the top button of their shirt, what are they? More of you knew that than priest? <laughs> what is wrong with our church? <laughs> no, so, so you know, right? Like you, you can be somewhere. And 
You, you can see what people are, and this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, this, this guy showed up, and as soon as we saw him, we knew that there was something different about him. And it wasn't just the way he dressed, it was the way that he lived. He was a man that stood with Jesus for the sake of a culture that did not yet know Jesus. This is who he was. I remember four and a half years ago, June 24th, 2010, my wife, Sydney, was nine months pregnant. It was four o'clock in the morning. We were doing what every normal person does at four o'clock in the morning. We're sound asleep. And her water breaks. And if you've never been there for that experience, it's a different experience. And uh, I don't wake up very easily. You know, and she like woke me up and she's speaking very gently to me. She's like, my water's just broken. We're getting ready to go to the hospital. And I'm thinking, he's not supposed to be here for two more weeks. And she's like, he didn't get the memo. Like he's, he's on the way pack a bag, we're, we're going to the hospital, and you know, we're having this you know, conversation. And I remember getting in the car and driving down, and she gives birth to this beautiful cone-headed little baby, you know, covered in goo, but we loved him and thought he was beautiful. And all of our friends and our family, everybody's coming down to the hospital. And I remember that day just so vividly, one of the, one of the greatest days of my life, when each, each of my three sons were born, just some of the greatest days of my life. I remember that afternoon sitting in the hospital uh, at St. Thomas Midtown, little room, kind of on the west side of the building. The light was coming in through the shades, kind of mid-afternoon. Most of our company had left because we were just exhausted. Sydney was taking a nap. And I remember sitting there holding just this like little bundle of joy. And I remember my mom and dad were in the room. And I'll never forget this conversation that I began having with my dad. He, he looked at me. He's like, Dave, it's so crazy. You are sitting in the intersection of a miracle right now. You know, to think that God has known you. He knew when you'd be born, where you'd live, what you're going to do, when you're going to die. To think that he knew when Micah was going to be born. Like, he wasn't surprised that he came two weeks early. He knew when he was going to be born, where he's going to live, when he's going to die. He knows what he's going to do. He knows everything about his life before it's happened. And, you know, my mind, I'm just like, man, this is a crazy thing to think about. And he says, to think that God knew your son before he was born, and he chose you to stand in the gap with Jesus for him is this unbelievable privilege. He's like, your job as a dad is not to make sure he gets on the best baseball team or goes to the best private school or is always comfortable and secure. Those things are fine. He's like, your job is to help this kid see the glory of Jesus, like to, to help him grow into, like that's the job. And I, and I remember just like sitting there, I'm like, thanks for putting pressure on me. It's like, you know, just this moment, just being overwhelmed with the joy and the responsibility of getting to stand with Jesus for the sake of the next generation that does not yet know Jesus. And it's, it's changed the way that I've seen everything because I, I see people now and I go, man, everyone is somebody, someone. Every, every person we, we encounter is somebody, someone. That, that moment when they, they came in the world and to think that God has placed you in this specific point of time. You know, Acts 17 says that God knew when everyone would be born and where they would live so that the people around them would reach out and discover that God was never far. Like, can we just all shake our heads in agreement that our culture, we just know it's kind of like broken and messed up. You know, you look at the stuff that happened in Paris this week and go, man, what's going on in our culture? God is not surprised by the brokenness. He's not freaking out over it. He sent his son Jesus to deal with it. And God is not surprised that you have been born into this culture. He chose that you'd be born into this culture. 
Because there's something in your heart and in your life by the glory and the power of God that can reveal the nature of God to the world around you if only we, we would open our lives to the ways of God. And I love this, this moment. He says, listen, this story that we're swimming in that's being written in the world is the story of Jesus, but the story of Jesus is being written through ordinary people just like you and I. And I still believe that God will change the world with men and women that are willing to stand unapologetically with Jesus for the sake of a culture that does not yet know him. And I go, do we want to be church attenders, song singers, sermon listeners? Or do we want to be men and women standing in the gap? I love this about John the Baptist. He's raised up by the Lord to stand with Jesus for the sake of a generation that does not yet know Jesus. That's who he was. What is it that he would do? Jump back to verse two with me. What is it that he spent his life doing? Just as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, I will send a messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist came into the desert preaching a baptism of repentance and forgiveness in the whole Judean countryside. And all those in Jerusalem would go out to him. I love this scene as you think kind of about this second idea. What did he spend his life doing? Here's kind of the big idea. He spent his life paving the way for the Lord into the desert places. He spent his life paving the way for the Lord into the desert places. Now, I want to kind of give us a picture of what's going on here because there's so much imagery. I wish we had more time to talk about this. During the days of Jesus, whenever a king would go from one city to the next, he would send out a convoy in front of him. The convoy had kind of two functions. One group would go out and make sure there were no thieves or bandits uh, along the roadways. They'd go out and essentially make sure the king was going to be safe. It's kind of like the secret service going out before the president. The second thing is they'd send a group behind those guys, and their job was to literally get on their hands and knees. They did not have paved roads. They had dirt roads and stone roads. And the job of this group was to, to go along these dirt roads and to fill in the potholes, to smooth out the bumpy places so that the chariot of the king could go as fast as possible. Because they believed if the king could get to the place that he wanted to go more quickly, it would only benefit the people. I love this picture of John the Baptist. It's not this picture of this like dynamic leader or of this amazing speaker or this wonderful strategist. It's this picture of a man who spent his life both physically and metaphorically on his hands and knees, paving the way, filling in the potholes so that King Jesus could come right behind him into the hearts of the people that he was reaching. But I love this. It doesn't just say that he was a road paver. It says that he was a road paver into the desert places. See, for us, we, we read this and we just like miss that detail. Oh, cool, it's, it's in the desert. What does that mean? But for the people of Jesus' day, the desert was a really big deal. It wasn't just a physical location. It was a spiritual metaphor. It was a picture that all of them would have understood because during the days of Jesus, they believed that not only was the desert a physically tough place to live in, hot, dry, very difficult climate for human beings. They believed that spiritually the desert was the place where demons gathered, where demons lived, where non-God lovers would go to dwell. To be a person in the desert was not a compliment, especially in the context of the church. If the temple was the place where they thought God would dwell, the desert is the place where they thought God would flee. Where was it that Jesus was tempted right after his baptism? The, I'll give it to you again, the, the desert, right? And it's interesting 
that the revival and the good news of Jesus does not begin in the temple. It begins in the desert. You get this picture of a guy named John who was not just with Jesus for the culture. He took Jesus to the culture. He went to the people that, that didn't feel comfortable in the temple anymore. He went to the people that felt hopeless and dry as maybe, maybe as if God had given up on them. Maybe as if God was done with them. And he comes as this, this road paver saying, Jesus Christ is coming. And the revival does not start in the temple. The revival starts in the desert with the people that all believe God surely had to have been done with them. This is where the good news of the gospel starts. I love thinking about this. Uh, you're going to have to use your imaginations because I know you're a, a very holy, very good group of people. So you've probably never been to a bar or a nightclub outside of a Sunday, right? So why'd you laugh? You need to confess something? Um, so you have to imagine this with me for a moment, okay? But you think about this in, in, in the nightclub industry. Um, there's two really important jobs. There's a lot of important jobs, but I'll give you two of them. Um, one is the job of the bouncer, and the other is the job of a promoter, and their jobs are very different. And so the, the job of the promoter is he, he walks out on the streets, and he's trying to just get as many people into the clubs as possible, right? Just imagine. That, that, but that's his job. He's trying to get as many people into the clubs as possible. So he's walking down the street, and he sees a group of dudes in cargo shorts and stained polo shirts, and he's like, yeah, they'll let you in. You know, and he's, he's handing out the promo because his job is to fill the place. The bouncer's job is to do what? keep people out, to decide who can come in, who can't. And so the promoter just brings in all the riffraff, like anybody that can come, let's just get as many people to the club as possible. And the bouncer's job is to stand in the door and go, man, you can come in, you can't, you can come in, you can't. And, and I was thinking about this because so often I think we begin to believe that our, our job in the context of the Christian community is to function more like bouncers and promoters. As if it's our job to stand at the door of God's kingdom and to go, you come in, you can't come in. This sin is acceptable, this sin's not. And you just gotta hear this. As followers of Jesus, we are not gatekeepers. We are door holders. And we are holding open the door wide so that all the broken, so that all the riffraff, so that all the hopeless, so that all the dry, so that all the disillusioned, so that all those have been burned by church, so that all those who think they have been hurt and hated by God can come in and be touched by the living God. And so often, John the Baptist gets a bad rap. He only had a bad rap amongst the church people. Those in the desert love this dude because he came with the message of Jesus. And I go, when is the last time our culture looked at our churches and said, those are the good news people. Those are the people that really believe God can do something in my life. See, a lot of times the world sees us as gatekeepers and bouncers, not door holders and road pavers. There's this beautiful picture of what God is getting ready to do in the world. He raises up this man who stands with Jesus for the sake of a generation. And he does that by getting down on his hands and his knees and paving the way, holding open the door, so that all those who thought God had forgotten them could come running right in. This is one of the things I love about our church, guys. We have always been, we've always been desert people. You've always been desert people. I can't tell you how many times somebody's come up and said, I have a new idea for a ministry. We should really be doing things in the strip clubs or we should start this Hooters ministry. These are women that are coming up with these ideas, by the way. Or who's, who's thinking about the addicts? Who's thinking about the kids with no fathers? 
Ethos, we are at our best when we're desert people. We're at our best when we understand that our job is not to discern who's in and who's out, but to throw open the doors of God's kingdom and say, all who are weary, all who are thirsty, come in, find rest. Because here Jesus is, and Jesus can do. Who was John the Baptist? He was a man that stood with Jesus for the sake of a generation that did not yet know Jesus. What did he do? He spent his life paving the way into the desert places. And how did he do it? These are the last couple of verses that we're going to look at. Verse 7 and 8. And this was his message. Oh, I love this. <laughs> After me is coming one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I love this. John shows up. This man that's with Jesus for the sake of a generation that's paving the road and holding open the door so that people can encounter God. And his message is so unbelievably simple. John says, listen, Jesus is coming and this is great news for broken people. He's not just coming to forgive you of your sins. He's gonna send you the Holy Spirit who will free your life from the grip of sin. Jesus isn't coming just as your cosmic cheerleader to tell you that everything's okay, <laughs> that you're gonna be all right. Jesus comes to encourage you, but to empower you so you can start living the life that God has made you to live. And I love the entirety and the totality of John's message was Jesus. He says, if you're encouraged, you need Jesus. If you're broken, you need Jesus. If you're down and out, you need Jesus. If you're discouraged, you need Jesus. If you need healing, you need Jesus. I go, this is our message. Guys, at Ethos, it's, it's not about the songs and the sermon and the strategy and the branding and the buildings and the young people. And the, it's, it's about none of this stuff. It's about Jesus, his kindness, his grace, his love, his mercy, his provision, his fullness. And it's these things that are poured out through ordinary people so that those around us can see the beauty of God within us. Like, I mean, can you imagine what would happen this year if we as a church just said, man, God, would you align our purposes and our passions with yours? Would you really take our lives? Man, make us like John the Baptist. Would you make us people that stand with you for a generation that doesn't yet know you as road pavers and door holders with this unbelievable message that Jesus is coming and that is great news for those whose lives are falling apart. I think sometimes in our hesitancy to share the gospel, it's a revelation of what we really think about the gospel. Sometimes in our hesitancy to share it, it's a revelation that we don't actually think it's that great of news. And because we don't think it's really great news for broken people, we only share it with people that have already been saved. <laughs> that's, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I say that with love. I've done that too. It's like having the cure for cancer and only sharing it with people that don't have cancer. Can you imagine what would happen if the purpose of our church and the posture of our lives was to say, Jesus, we will stand with you as road pavers and door holders so that all of the disenfranchised and the broken and the outcast in this city can be touched by God in this place. Oh, man, I'm convinced that what God wants to do in this city cannot be contained in one church or in one building, or amongst one people, but that there will be a day when the Spirit of God who is upon you and within you will commission us to take up the mantle that John the Baptist had 
And we will become this group of wandering desert people, (laughs) proclaiming the greatness of God in the places that nobody else is willing to go. I go, that's a vision I can live into. That's something I can get excited about. And I was thinking about this year, and I was going, okay, God, how, how do I pull this down to the ground? And I've had one simple prayer. I've prayed it every day this year, 10 days. You can be real impressed, you know. Kind of a simple prayer for the first 10 days of this year is that, God, would you use my life to bring three people this year to Jesus Christ? Uh, God, would you use me, maybe in word or in deed, would you use my life? And so I started thinking, you know, I thought, thought about one of my family members. I thought about the guy that works here in this building. I thought about a friend of mine that I've known for a long time. I'm like, God, would you use me to bring each of these folks to Jesus? I mean, can you imagine? It's not for my sake. It's not for your sake that we share the gospel. It's for their sake because we believe Jesus is not a philosophy or a concept, but that he's a living God and he's a great living God. And we share the gospel so people can know the God of the gospel, right? That's, that's why we do this. Now, can you imagine what would happen if God used every person in our church family this year to bring three people into the kingdom of God? We'd see 10,000 new people come to know the Lord this year just in our church. Wouldn't that be amazing? I don't know where we'll put them. We don't have enough seats. We'll have to send them to other churches, but it'd be amazing. What if we... What if we don't, you know, perform or do as well as we want to do this year? What if each of us just reached one new person? Can you imagine seeing 3,300 people baptized into Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, living lives of freedom this year? I mean, there is nothing better you can give your life to in 2015 than to unapologetically stand with Jesus for the sake of a generation that doesn't yet know him. Who's your one? Who are your three? Who will you pave the road for this year so the glory of God can enter into the desert places of our city? Man, God wants to use you. Will you be open to being used? For those of you that are not yet followers of Jesus, I just want to give you one simple question. I'm not going to do a big altar call. If you want to become a follower of Jesus, I'll be up here and come find me, and I'll uh, I'll help you do that tonight. If you're interested, you can talk with someone in the room. But for those of you that are not followers of Jesus, I really just want to give you one thing to wrestle with tonight. What does it tell you about Jesus that the God of the universe would start his ministry not in the temple but in the desert? What does it tell you about the fact that God would say, I want the first people to taste my goodness to be the ones who aren't welcome in the religious circles anymore? Is it possible that Jesus not only understood them, but that he understands you? Is it possible that he's still, still that good? Still pursuing, still loving? I go, hmm, I wonder if he wants to meet you in the desert this year. Let's pray together.